Hi, my name is John Morris. I'm the author of The League of Regrettable Sidekicks, and I've been captured by the nice fellows at Thinking Outside the Long Box. Send help. Hey guys, Gabe here. So, I always feel like I'm rushing the intro because I want to get as many questions in uh, in the time that I'm allotted with the people that we talk to. And so I always go, this is the person. So, we're going to try something a little different. Uh, We are going to start putting the intros at the front of the interview. So, with that said, this is Gabe, and this is a Thinking Outside the Long Box interview. So, today we're going to be talking to Ron Canada. Uh, Ron Canada is literally a four-decade character actor that has been in almost anything that you can think of. Literally from baby Adventures in Babysitting to Home Alone 2 to National Treasure. But, of course, we got in contact with him because we talked very recently about The Empty Man. So... We talk a lot about The Empty Man and his reactions to the film, and of course what it's been like being in film for over 40 years, and kind of some of the things that he's seen change, and some of the things that he thinks are better and worse. Enjoy the interview, guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, Ron, welcome to the show. Uh, first of all, how are you doing today? Uh, it's a very hot day in New York, but I'm I'm going to get through this interview so I can turn on my uh, air conditioning stuff back on. But uh, for uh, it's 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 pretty warm. It's pretty toasty in New York right now. I uh, I I am fortunate enough to work in a basement, so it stays cool most of the time. <laughs> so yeah. so obviously we gave you a call, at, you know, and reached out to you because we wanted to talk to you about your work on the Empty Man. Um, so you were just telling me before we got started that you watched the movie like all the way through for the second time, uh, just uh, like a few hours ago. It kind of sounds yes, like- a few uh, early in the early a.m. hours, and uh, I had watched it for the first time. You know, we waited so long for the movie to to uh, uh, eventually be released because um, uh, it was made several years ago, and. Um, I had had the occasion, uh, two occasions, to run into Marin Ireland, a lovely, lovely lady and wonderful actress. And I would always say, Marin, what is happening? Have you heard anything that's happening with our movie? And uh, I'd come to, sometimes you make a film and it's never released. But apparently with the change of ownership of of the film library, uh, whatever the big business deal was between Fox and... uh, and uh, Disney, um, it was um, it, it finally made it to the light of day, and uh, it's 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 a pretty astonishing, pretty strange film, <laughs> to be frank. So, um, one of the things that I was really interested in, and the reason I ended up suggesting it for the show, is because this is effectively like the prequel to a comic book series that I really really like. Did you have an opportunity to read the comic book at all, or was it even mentioned when you were getting ready to work on it? No, um, you know, when, when I uh, auditioned for David uh, Pryor, um, uh, God, I, I, how many years ago was that now? Um, because there was a long period between the audition 
and uh, going to South Africa to uh, make the film. It was the better part of a year went by. Um, uh, so um, the film was just released this year, 21. I believe it was made, we made it in, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, did we make it in 17, uh, 2017 or 18? Um, but I seventeen, yeah, twenty seventeen. Seventeen. So, um, I, you know, it was very early in seventeen, if if not late sixteen, when I uh, auditioned. But David, uh, it was just about the script. And when we were, when I was in South Africa with um, with a, a, a badge and David and all um, and Marin, uh, it was never the comic book the or graphic novel was never discussed. I discovered afterwards that there was a graphic novel. Um, and uh, it may have been when I finally got to see the film and I saw the based on credit. That's when I said, oh, that's where this came from. I, I it made me feel a little better. I thought, man, is this stuff just the stuff in David's head? You know? <laughs> Uh, uh, it, it, it's pretty eerie. It's uh, it's very unique movie. It I think it's a it's a really unique concept in the in the comic book. It effectively takes off off where the movie ends, so where the empty man has happened, and it's effectively spreading this infection of like violence. You know, which is mm-hmm. really interesting. So you know, being kind of removed from that comic book, maybe you know, not knowing that the, you know, that it's effectively the start of a story when you viewed the movie after having worked on it, like, I mean, years previous, like what was your initial response when you saw the movie, (laughs) when you finished it? It was seeing it on film. It was even more kind of disturbing and anxiety producing and, um, uh, eerie than the script had even read. Um, uh, there is, and even the second time watching it, uh, just in the early hours, it, it was even more so, I found, on second viewing. I'm not a person, uh, I think I'm not that different from a lot of, of actors who get to uh, work in big films. We don't sit around in our houses watching our you know, uh, uh, watching ourselves on film that that way leads to Sunset Boulevard, the famous uh, uh, movie. I'm ready for my close up. Mr. DeMille It's not something I normally do. Uh, I may uh, see a movie, um, a film after I've made it once, which is always a difficult uh, viewing the first time. And then I may not see it for years. And usually the years uh, go by and I can look at it more objectively and enjoy it more. Um, I have seldom watched a film twice in such close succession. And I saw more and understood more and understanding it the second time where it was going, I found it more anxiety producing on the second viewing than the first time. Uh, It is... uh, yeah, a psychological thriller, um, to say the least. Um, I, I'm not a big horror genre movie, and I don't think this, to me, doesn't fit into horror genre genre so much as, um, oh God, maybe psychological horror. I, I, it's it's much more disturbing than any slasher movie to me. 
it is. It's a very it's a very twisted up plot that that puts you in a in a very interesting headspace once you finish it. It's yes. very very it's it's a thinker, which I think is why it's flying under the radar a lot more than I think it should. But um so you know, you've worked in film and television, I mean, for decades. You've been in everything from like Home Alone 2 and like House of Cards and the Orville. Like, you know, what is it? What are some of like the big changes that you've seen over time? Because there has to be a lot of things that are different about how movies and TV were made 40 years ago than they are now. Well, it, the, the major thing, the process really, though, as, as in, since we, I guess we've had sound in movies, has the basic elements of the process haven't changed that much. You still have to obey the grammar of film and, 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 and shoot scenes uh, and go about them in much the same way. Well, I was talking to some friends the other night at dinner. The biggest difference is um, I, I have a friend, James uh, Parks, who worked on um, um, uh, hateful late uh, with with Quentin, and they were shooting in seventy millimeters. So they were shooting an actual film, okay. And so with films, you had you were trying to get shots in within you know magazines, or they would put a short end up, which meant we're trying to get a take without a full magazine and so forth. So there was a kind of um, you were aware of burning film. Okay, in television, you're aware of burning, you know, uh, burning 35 millimeter or or 16 or whatever it is. You you knew that there was this other factor, cost factor called film stock. Well, now that's gone in the last 15, (laughs) 20 years. It's become more and more electronic. And, um, you know, so this isn't so much of a concern. There's a more of you still have to stay on schedule, but there's m- more of a relaxation around, um, you know, a blown take, which is is uh, something that is part of the, the business. You you keep shooting a scene or an aspect of a scene of, of the coverage until you get it right. And um, the pressure to get it right when you were burning film stock, I think, was just a little anxiety producing uh, edge producing element that is not there now. Uh, And I, I think that's probably for the better because uh, it's my belief that tension is the, the enemy of, of good performance. Uh, After 40 years of doing this, I'm, I'm certain that that's the case. And so every tension eliminating factor that you can get out of it, um, the better. Now, there are qualitative things about film stock, about 35 millimeter that are just, you know, that are just wonderful. That's why the the, the great artists of movie making still like to shoot whenever they can right. on uh, right. a good old Kodak 35 or, or Fuji 35, whatever it is. Uh, but um, I think from the actor's point of view, it's just a little less stressful than it used to be. And the other thing is that uh, I was looking at David used steady cam and so forth. There's a lot, I think quite a bit of steady cam uh, in this uh, film. And when steady cam first came in, the elements of the equipment um, were much heavier and it took physically stronger guys. 
And uh, there was a lot more metal involved. And uh, the first Steadicam guys didn't last long because their backs, you know, their careers ended early um, because having the weight of this apparatus. uh, Steadicam is sort of a gyroscopic uh, uh, mounting of the camera that allows for certain kinds of of movement, uh, of free, uh, uh, smooth movement in filmmaking that. Um, where in the olden days you had to lay down a, 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 a little track for the camera to be on a dolly track. Now you can, a, a camera operator can have the rig on his body and just move and it'll be just as smooth as a track. Well, now these rigs are made of composite material and cameras, electronic cameras are a lot smaller and lighter mm-hmm. than the old uh, uh, film cameras were. And so, um, you know, a lot smaller people can be camera operators and they can operate for and have longer careers. So that, <laughs> that's um, a positive inside or technical, but no, you know. that's really interesting. Like it's I don't think we get to talk like I don't get to discuss much with people that have such long careers in like one field. And it's really it's really interesting to hear how things change, how things develop, because those are all things that, you know, from your perspective have, have aided the filming process. Less tension makes better performances, less gear makes less broken bodies. You know, those are, those are good things in the long run. And here's another thing. Directors used to have to send people racing to the airport to get the day's shooting on a plane to fly it somewhere back to Los Angeles or wherever, wherever it was being processing processed and then fly it back so they could look at the day's work. Now the director can um, go to video village or, or, or be right there at his monitors and he can have a playback and he can see what just was shot. And he can even, if he wants to call over an actor or any element of the production crew and say, see this in the frame, we need to fix that or we need to change it. It gives um, the director an immediate erase board, right? Which also makes the filmmaking uh, process more efficient and takes some time off and allows the director and the other artists, uh, the the lighting director and the DP, and and uh, to some degree, this is the actors, um, if if they're the kind that like to watch. Or, um, I don't know that many that want to be running to the monitor looking at every take because uh, that's <laughs> uh, again that way. Except for very few people, that way lies madness and insecurity. Right. Um, they, but it allows a great, the filmmaker and I, the principal one of those is the director, a lot more control and a lot more rapid correction uh, or, or a change of direction in, in the, what's in the frame. And ultimately, what matters in filmmaking is what is in the frame. Yeah. That is. That's so. it. That's cool. It's all of that stuff is super interesting to me. So I don't know. I, I get really excited hearing about this kind of stuff. Like it, it's, I love how technology advances to like make a better product. 
Well, it's certainly in, in, in I have a skepticism about a lot of the effects of tech in our society. But I have to say overall that the movie making process has been streamlined somewhat and qualitatively improved because of the ability to correct errors rapidly. Yeah. Like I, I can't imagine like the hassle that it would be to like fly something there and back like crazy. <laughs> it was what we used to do up until yeah. 1990, up until the mid nineties. Wow. That's the way we did it. So when you're, you know, when you're kind of looking at, uh, this movie as it stands kind of in its, how it was in its weird limbo state for a while, you know, you mentioned that there's other movies that, you know, sometimes a movie gets made and it just doesn't get released. Is there, has there ever been a movie in your career where you're like, or a show where you made it, you were really proud of the performance and then it just kind of disappeared into the ether. Like, has that, that I know that, What's that? I know there. I know there have been a couple, but you know, part of lasting in this business is a kind. I guess it's kind of a psychological protective mechanism. I've blocked the specifics, but I know I know firsthand that yeah. it has happened. Uh, um, um, and I think it was TV uh, uh, mainly. Um, I don't think I've ever shot an entire film that went. Uh, was ended up being unreleasable. There are a couple that I wish had been declared unreleasable, uh, which I will not name, but um, uh, there definitely have been some TV, uh, a couple of TV things, uh, perhaps uh, episodes of a series that got canceled um, uh, quickly. Uh, oh, I know one that was, I thought was quite good. Jason Bateman had a, a television series, a short lived television series Um, I think we shot it on a universal lot, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, No, it wasn't universal. It was um, up at uh, uh, Radcliffe Studios up in in Studio City. Um, And Jason, all the the charm and and, and, and likability that he has brought to films, uh, he was bringing to this television series where he was playing a young lawyer. And I really liked um, the uh, the episode uh, that I appeared in and uh, and thought it was a show and I thought he was terrific he was a terrific person and um, what he is as a performer what he's grown to is quite clear and that show was canceled before the episode that I happened to have worked on uh, ever appeared I think it was one of those late nineties things uh, where they they were really pulling the plug fast on on series and um, I think it was three episodes and out and I think I was in episode seven or something so yeah it it happens it's a real thing so I've I've always wanted to ask this and I've never really had the opportunity to ask somebody that's played like a cop a lot on tv or a detective a lot or a doctor a lot have you ever had to do the advertisement where you say, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV because I've always wanted to ask that. I only use that in real life. I think those of us who, who have played as I have, as who rightly uh, recognize a ton of uh, detectives. And uh, when I'm not a detective, I'm a doctor or I'm a, an attorney. And that's great because those parts never go away in television, which is right. partially responsible 
responsible for my long resume and uh, and longevity is that I'm a guy who can do those three things. And those are never out of fashion on TV, <laughs> lawyer shows, doctor shows and cop shows. So uh, but I, I use it in my personal life. I go, well, you know, I'm not a doctor. I only played him on TV, but I, I, I frequently use that phraseology. But no, I've never I've never actually had to say it on TV. I do remember um, once going to audition um, Bruce Paltrow, who is, was Gwyneth's father, who was a prolific television producer, was uh, working on a pilot for a new cop show. And uh, I went to the audition and uh, again, somewhere in Studio City. And there we were, a whole room of all the familiar TV gumshoes. And there we all were together. And it was like so funny. And somebody cracked said, well, you know, aren't we lucky, the TV cops, you know, uh, because we're never out of style. Right. If you're a sergeant, whomever, you are on every season of television in every year. Uh, I mean, there were there once television was dominated by Westerns and they went out of style. And sometimes it goes through a sci fi phase. And uh, at least this was broadcast television. Now everything is always in style, which is the other great thing about the plethora of uh, ways in which people receive uh, their entertainment. It means that you don't you can find your audience. You don't have to appeal to the broad audience, but the network TV would go through these phases. There were Westerns and they went away and there were medical shows and then lawyer shows. And you would see what the wave was this year. Well, there was never a year when there weren't cop shows. Never, never. (laughs) So, uh, or even, even in medical shows, there would be the cop episode where the cops bring somebody in. (laughs) Uh, So, um, uh, yeah, uh, that is, uh, I feel very fortunate to be able to say, I'm not a lawyer, doctor, or a policeman, but I've played plenty of them on TV. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I love talking to, to actors like you, you know, we've talked to Jim Beaver and a couple other guys that are like in that, you know, what gets termed like a character actor kind of place. And I have right. so much respect for you guys because you have made like a real working man's career out of something that people just think is art artistry and big stardom and all that other stuff. And I think it really mirrors a lot of the behind the scenes work that happens in films that people don't think about. And I think in a lot of ways you represent that same ethos of I'm here because it's my job and I do it well. Like, and thank you. That's really cool to me. Well, well, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I had an acting course that I taught and I probably will be bringing it back if my producer partner, Tricia Parks, <laughs> stays on my back. But I called it the acting department because I wanted to help stage actors to take advantage of all the work that there is in New York right now. Uh, every soundstage in New York is humming and a good portion of all the scripted television that you see is now back where tele- scripted television began in New York City. Um, and uh, I wanted to help stage actors transition and be able to know what to expect. And I called it the acting department. I called it that because on a television show or a movie, there, there is the camera department, the costume department, the art department, the set department, the lighting department. And one of the things that actors who come from the theater mainly need to understand that 
uh, making movies and television is yes, it's art, but it's an industrial activity. There are X number of pages that have to be executed every day. X days to get this episode done. We're moving on to the next one. Uh, when you're making a movie, the meter is running big time, all the time. And so there's a kind of productivity expectation. Uh, and the art of it, of the storytelling, is in the hands of the acting department. And we are expected, along with the movie director, to understand every element of the storytelling. The lighting guys are lighting it. The camera guys are shooting it. The sound guys just want to get perfect sound. The storytelling is for the acting department and the director. In television, it's even more so because the television director is a guy or a woman who's jobbed in and their style is done by the executive producers and they have to get seven to eight, eight and a half pages shot every day. And they're not going to sit in a conference with you about the story. There's no time. Yeah. Uh, the, the the actors coming in, the guest stars, the actors around the main star, name above the title person, come in to give the texture to the story. And we're expected to supply all of the elements of the storytelling. And what the TV director expects to do is tell us where we enter, uh, where we sit down, where we cross, uh, lean left or right be, to be in the proper light. But they do not have time nor inclination or perhaps the knowledge to talk about how a story should be executed from the acting point of view. The most they can ever do is, uh, that was great, Ron. Can, can, can it be a little quicker? <laughs> you know? uh, because, you know, because one hour of TV is 44 minutes. Right. And where, um, you know, uh, in a movie, typically in a movie, if, I don't know if your audience knows this, you shoot, anywhere from two and a half to four pages of script a day. In television, you're shooting twice as fast to get the 44 minutes of actual footage in a one-hour uh, television drama. A one-hour television drama has uh, uh, 16 minutes of commercials in it. Right. So to shoot that 44, you're shooting 44 minutes of finished program uh, in, in uh, what is technically an eight-day schedule, but basically you're shooting for, for uh, five or six days. So you got to get it done. And uh, being the acting department, you don't have time to be in deep discussions as you are in a theater about the meaning of, you know, the exchange on the top of page four. And you know, uh, there's no time. You go and you you come in in the morning and you meet the director and you go, OK, let's read through this thing. Ron, have you met Val? Val, Ron? Now, you guys know, right? You read the script. You've been married for 35 years and your son died last year and you're trying to get through it. OK. All right. So let's read this thing. <laughs> and then you say, OK, um, let's see. Let's 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 block it. He says the first AD and the camera. I, OK, Ron, you walk in and Val is sitting there sobbing and you come in and you sit down next door. That about Val. Okay. All right. Bring everybody in and we'll walk it for him. Walk it for him. Okay. Uh, you guys head back to makeup. We'll see you in about 15. We'll be, we'll be lit and we'll be ready to go. Wow. That's it. You never met this lady playing your wife. Right. You know, who lost this. you studied the script 
individually. She's a professional. She's there. We're the acting department on the day, uh, as as uh, Bill Friedkin likes to talk about. When we actually shoot this thing, he calls it on the day. Is is his phraseology? Well, Mo, on the day. Uh, on the day, we're going to come there and she, character actor, veteran lady, and I, character actor, veteran, we're going to do it as the acting department. And it's going to seem real because we're providing the texture for the story that the audience tunes in to see their star person that they love solve. You know, we're part of the, the situation that, that they're going to bring to pass. And we have to know what the hell we're doing. Yeah. And we, we can't lean on the director. Um, and and so what I explained to the, the theater actors uh, who, who ask or listen is, look, the reason that you get paid so much more in the theater, you're getting paid for all of those theater experiences. You're getting paid for all the times you did three sisters in front of 35 people, you know, at some basement theater downtown. Uh, you're being paid for all that uh, Euripides that you learned to do and the Shakespeare and the Neil Simon and the the expertise that you learn about the craft of acting is what they are buying yeah. and they expect you to supply it and not to be in there asking them how to do it. So. Yeah. <laughs> you, you're not expected to ask what's your motivation to use yeah. the, the, oh, boy. the old trope. Your, yeah. <laughs> your, your motivation is to get this check or do I have to call casting and get somebody to replace you right. before lunch? Yeah. Which happens. Oh, I can imagine people that don't know what they're getting into yet. <laughs> right. Or, or people who come unprepared and don't know what words they're supposed to say, especially in television where the writer is king. There's a big difference between movies and television. In a, in a movie, uh, especially a movie like this one where David was the writer, uh, David Pryor, and he was also the editor. He, he was king of the universe, right. you know, there. Um uh, the creative force. Well, in television, the creative force is the person that you see executive producer. It uh, used to be my dear beloved late Stephen Bochco, um, uh, uh, Dick Wolf, uh, uh, yeah, John Wells, um, uh, Darren Starr. These are the stars. The executive producer, who is usually a writer, right? And the creator of the program and the people in the writing room. They expect you to say what they wrote. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Star Trek, when, when Rick Berman used to run it, Rick wasn't writing it all, but they expected you on Star Trek to say what was written on um, uh, uh, a West Wing. You're not, not ad-libbing. You didn't ad-lib or, or, or change a line because it felt more natural to you on a Stephen Bochco show. You would be more naturally out the door and headed for the parking lot very shortly. Or, you know, uh, they just, you would be hired once and never hired again. Hmm. And uh, so people sometimes say to me, um, uh, why do we see the same faces? You know, you're talking about the character actors. Why do we see them all the different, you know, when it, uh, some actors, why do they give other people a chance? Because the people you see all the time are the people who can produce. They're the people hmm. who come there knowing the words, knowing what to do, and... Um, can get their part of it done in two takes or three takes so that the star 
can have five takes yeah. or six. You know, it, and that, that's a big part of where, like, the respect that I have for character actors come from. Like, it's it's literally the the working class ethos in the filmmaking industry to a point where you guys are just the stalwarts. You're there. You know, you might be a that guy where I've seen you in a million things and I know I've seen you and I know I like your acting, but I may not remember your name. That's right. Like that is that is a kind of guy that I will go to IMDb and look up. If I don't know who the star in a movie is, I don't really care that much. You know, I want to know who the guy who I've seen in like 30 other things is. And that's really cool to me. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. Because I like to think of myself as a craftsman, first of all, and on my best days and given the opportunity to approach his art. But I come to work with a craftsman's attitude. You know, that's a a damn good cabinet. (laughs) That's exactly how Jim Beaver described it was as a craftsman. And I thought that was Mm -hmm. really, really cool. Well, I better wrap it up. You know, I don't want to take up too much of your time today. Uh, Ron, as we're looking forward to the future, you know, where are some places that uh, our fans can find you? And then also, what are some things we can look forward to from you? Well, uh, let me see. Uh, uh, I just I had the great fun of doing a episode of Aquafina is uh, Nora from Queens, which is a really quirky uh, uh, Comedy Central uh, 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 series of uh, um uh, starring a very talented uh, uh asian american actress um um uh, aquafina and what was the other thing i did earlier this year um gosh you know it's funny things you you work for so long you do so much work and you put it behind you and you move on it's hard to to um sometimes keep track oh oh there is a pilot coming out uh, on Fox, it is based um, on roughly on the Goonies. I think I'm allowed to say that the old Goonies producing team of Richard and Lauren Donner and um, Amblin Entertainment, which is when you yeah. hear Amblin Entertainment, it's Mr. Spielberg um, and um, the second uh, lead uh, actress is um a lovely lady named Jessica Capshaw, mm-hmm. uh, Capshaw, Kate Capshaw being Mrs. Spielberg. Um, it is a very, um, uh, uh, it's a real uplifting kind of human thing. And uh, I don't know that it's titled yet, but it's something to look forward to in the the, the latter part of uh the year, I think the lead actress's name is Caitlin. Wow, Caitlin Fitzpatrick, I think. <laughs> lovely, lovely, smart, lovely. Um, you're all you know, you're working everybody by first names, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, so there's, there's that project, the television project with Mr. with Amblin Entertainment involved, along with the Donners. If for people who don't know, the Donners are the people who did the Superman movies, among many other. Other things. Uh, Richard Donner is, uh, you know, a, a very successful uh, Hollywood director and their successful producing team. Uh, Gail Berman is another uh, one of the producers. So they're really a powerhouse producing team. And um, it is based on the movie The Goonies. It, it has a relationship to The Goonies. So when you hear about that, 
I'll be in that, at least in the pilot. So, um, and there's, a, well, if I may mention one more thing, there's a podcast coming from Marvel. Oh, cool. That um, I, I, I appeared in three episodes of, and it is from a spinoff Avengers char- a character, and I can't say any more than that. Well, that's that's totally fine. We understand embargoes and having to keep the tight lips, but but that is, that is super awesome. Thank you so much again for being on our show. We really appreciate your time, and I hope you continue to play doctors, actors, and lawyers for a very, very long time. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Well, you see, a pretty good policeman in in the Empty Man. Uh, I would say if you get weirded out easily, though, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I but just, it's extremely smart and. And, and and strange film original. I like, just, I like to just blind recommend this to people. Like it's really fun. They're like, oh, I like horror movies. I'm like, you should watch this movie. And then they like <laughs> they message me like three hours later, like, what did you just make me? What watch? did you do to me? I- <laughs> Hey, you asked the wrong person, man. <laughs> A lot of the weird stuff. <laughs> well, thanks again uh, for oh, being thank you. We really appreciate your time. It was a pleasure talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, there you have it. That's my chat with Ron Canada. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Be sure to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel where you'll see all of these all the time. And if you're listening on the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends. We'd really appreciate that. Until next time, I've been Gabe, and this has been a Thinking Outside the Long Box interview. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Patreon, and YouTube for behind-the-scenes information and more content! Thinking Outside the Long Box is a barren space production! <laughs>